friend this morning. And it's your lucky day, all right? Um, let me explain why we're doing this, uh, first of all. Um, we're walking through this, uh, this sermon series, uh, uh, through the Evangelical Statement of Faith, uh, for a few reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, these beliefs that we're going to explore, and there's 10 of them in total, these beliefs, uh, they're foundational, all right? And uh, I really think that as we go through these beliefs, it'll help ground us in what we believe as a church. Now, if you've ever built a house, or, or I guess even bought a house, uh, you know that um, the framing in a house is not what usually immediately catches your eye. You're thinking about uh, maybe the, the color of the house, the furniture, the flooring, you know, the things that are, are really appealing. But if the framing in the house was not done well, uh, the house is in a world of hurt, right? The house is not going to last well. It's not going to endure. And these beliefs that we're going to consider, uh, they're like the, the framing in the house. Uh, these are essential for our personal faith in Jesus Christ, if we're going to have a faith that endures even hard times, uh, we've got to have a faith that's anchored in some core beliefs. And for us together as a church, if we don't have a faith that's together anchored uh, in some solid belief, it's hard to stick together during hard times. And that's really the second purpose of exploring these, this teaching, is these beliefs are unifying. Now, as you all know, um, in the larger evangelical church, and in our church in particular, uh, there's been some hard times over the past few years. There's been a lot of things in our culture that have forced us towards different viewpoints and have caused some division. And there's a couple ways that we can respond when there's differing viewpoints. Uh, one of the ways we can respond is by making some of those differing viewpoints the primary focus in the church. And a lot of churches right now of different ideologies are making secondary things primary. And we don't want to do that. We want to keep the primary things the primary thing. Now, another way that some churches respond to these potentially divisive secondary things is just not to talk about them. And the problem is, we can't escape these secondary things that cause division in our world. Uh, we're going in one way or another to be influenced by all these different ideologies, and if we don't talk about them here, then we're not going to learn how to think about them biblically. But we can actually have agreement, even when we disagree on secondary things, if we are grounded in the main things that we are unified around. These 10 essential beliefs we are unified around in this church. And, and the third reason for looking at this is uh, these beliefs is that they form our identity as a church. And if you're new here checking us out, I really hope the next you know, 10 weeks really serve as, uh, in some ways, a, a membership class of sorts. You know, well, what does this group of people believe? And if you've been here for a while with us, I hope this series kind of regalvanizes your sense of identity and who we are together as a church. Now, um, a couple resources for you, first of all. Uh, actually, I think I was going to put this slide up first. Um, if, you are just, if you can't get your fill of doctrine through the message, you just want more, all right? I, again, it's your lucky day. Uh, you can go to the Free Church, Statement of, uh, Free Church website. The Statement of Faith is posted there. Also, there's a book on the back table, uh, Evangelical Convictions. It's a book explaining in depth our Statement of Faith. Uh, you can purchase that book online. I think it's Next Step Resources where you can find it. And, uh, and I will be quoting a fair amount from that book. I just want you to know where that's coming from. Uh, last thing before we dive in uh, for our teaching for the morning. And I, that is, I want to say a word about a word. All right? And that word is the word evangelical. 
Now, for, when I first started pastoring over 20 years ago now, um, whenever I would tell people uh, what kind of church I was part of, usually they would say, what? And they'd have a hard time pronouncing, evangelical? It just it was a word that just made no sense because it wasn't that known by a lot of people in this area. Now, I find that the response has changed. No longer is it, uh, what is that? Now, now it's kind of like, really? The word evangelical has taken on a negative tone in our culture today. And that's because for the average person, you know, the word evangelical generally has almost like a political overtone. It's considered uh, more of a voting block than what it meant originally. So I want to explain what the word means to me and what I hope the word will mean to you. What the word evangelical is all about, the first part of it, the evangel, simply means good news. We are people who believe in the good news of Jesus. And historically, there were four things that characterized evangelicals. One, if they stood on the truth of the Bible. They believe the Bible is the word of God. It reveals to us who God is, how life is to be lived. It's our authority in life. So we look to the Bible as our authority. Secondly, we believe in the message of the cross, that only through the cross can our, ourselves and our world be set right. Jesus has come to take our sins upon himself in his cross. And third, we believe in personal conversion, that faith isn't just inherited. You're not born into it like you're born into an ethnicity. Uh, we need to all reckon with Jesus Christ and decide if we will follow him or not. We believe in personal conversion. And then fourth, we are, we are activists, that we want to do something with this message, proclaim it broadly, and demonstrate it with our lives. So evangelicals are active with their faith. So when you hear the word evangelical, I hope those things will come to your mind and not the, the common understanding we hear in our culture today. All right, how's that for a lead-in? You're raring and ready to go? Uh, what I have been doing the past few weeks is I've been having us stand as I read Scripture, and I'm not going to today. That's because I'm not going to start with a scripture. I'm going to start with a statement of faith. And while this statement of faith is based in scripture, it isn't scripture. All right, I want to make that clear. This statement of faith are human words that are drawn from the principles of scripture, but it's not scripture itself. So I'm going to read it, and there'll be a lot of scripture in the talk today, but really we're trying to explain this article, one, in our statement of faith. We read it earlier, and I'll read it again to us. It says, We believe in one God, creator, of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. Will you pray with me? Uh, Lord, we are grateful to be here this morning, uh, to be able to sing songs that are filled with truth about who you are and what you have done for us. Uh, we're grateful to be able to connect with each other and, and be able to uh, hear how um, uh, you've been working in our lives this week and to encourage each other. And Lord, we're grateful to come now and Lord, to have our minds uh, informed uh, from your word about what you say is true. And Lord, today we want to learn about you, about who you are, and Lord, uh, what you have done in our world. So God, I pray you'd open our eyes, uh, open our ears, make our hearts tender, and I pray that uh, you'd use this message this morning uh, to direct our gaze towards you and to set our feet firmly upon your truth. So please use this time now, Jesus, in your name. Amen. 
This morning, we are tackling Article 1, the doctrine of God. We're thinking about God this morning. Now, everyone thinks something about God. It could be that a person thinks that God doesn't exist. That's a conception of God. I would call that person having an atheistic understanding. Or maybe a person has an agnostic understanding. They think, I don't know how you can know if there is a God or not. Maybe, maybe not. That's another conception of God. Or maybe a person has a, a deistic conception of God. That is, there's got to be a God out there somewhere to make everything, but really not very involved in our lives. Kind of like spun the universe into existence and then is, you know, off somewhere else. A, a deistic understanding. Or maybe it's a more, you know, personal kind of picture. Maybe it's a picture like, uh, a, picture like, a, like a judge. Someone who is very, very concerned about finding out you're right and you're wrong. And so they conceive, a person conceives of God being a judge watching them. Or maybe the person conceives of God as like a, a, a very loving grandfather who wants to you know, give good gifts, but certainly not going to do a whole lot to implement any kind of rules. And there's all different kinds of conceptions of God that we have. And generally, they're based on our experiences. Something of our experience informs our thoughts about who God is. And all of us, all right, the most religious to the most irreligious. All of us have thoughts about God that aren't true. Every human being has conceptions of God that need to be refined and corrected, which is why we come to the Bible. Because the Bible reveals to us who God is. We would never get it right apart from coming to the Bible and finding out this revelation about who God is. So today, we're going to look at three things that should come to our mind when we think about God. All right. First, God is creator. Second, God is trinity. And third, God is redeemer. All right. Creator, trinity, and redeemer. I'm going to spend a little more time on the first one, and we'll go a little quicker through the second two. First, God is creator. The scriptures are filled with this message, that we believe in one God, creator of all things, holy and infinitely perfect. When we say he's holy, we really mean he's other than us. He's different than us. Uh, we're not creators. We are creation. God's the one who has made everything. Um, Genesis 1.1, the very first verse of the Bible, begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how the Bible begins, with God who creates everything. And just think about that. Uh, maybe some of you are, are on break this week. Maybe you're going to take a little time off. Maybe you're going to go to the mountains. Uh, maybe you're going to go to take a walk by the beach. Everything we see, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the galaxies, come from God. The rocks, the fields, the mountains, lakes, rivers, oceans, come from God. The hummingbirds, the bears, the lions, whales, orangutans, zebras, come from God. Oak trees, lilacs, carrots, raspberries, pumpkins, and rutabagas. They come from God. All things, if you think about the variety of things that we see in our world, all things great and small come from God. And as you look around the room today, the people that you see in this room, scriptures tell us, come from God. Which is why Colossians 1.16 kind of says this in a word of praise, that for, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible 
and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now, some of you in the room are nodding along with me. The idea that God is our creator, um, you're, you're, you're down with that. You, you, you trust that truth. Others of you may say, mm, I don't know. Uh, and, and I want to be very fair here. We don't arrive at this thought necessarily on our own. Uh, matter of fact, this is not a commonly accepted thought in our world today. This thought that God is the creator is actually quite countercultural. Uh, if you were to interview the average person on the street, I think you'd get something like this question. They would say, hasn't science disproved that idea that God is creator? I mean, don't we live in the modern world? I mean, maybe it's a, a pleasant thought, a pleasant origin story, a pleasant myth to think about God creating all of that. But come on, we live in the modern world where there's science. Hasn't science disproved the idea that there is a creator? Now, I'm not going to go way deep into this, but I think if we're, if we're going to be serious about thinking of God as creator, we have to reckon with this question. And so I want to reckon with it in two ways today. Um, the first is, if we're to take this question seriously and our faith in God being creator seriously, then we need to know this, that the belief that God is the creator of all things transcends scientific knowledge. All right? The belief that God is the creator of all things is greater than, transcends what we call scientific knowledge. I want to read you a quote uh, from Evangelical Convictions, the book that uh, gets at this point. It says, This doctrine is not the conclusion of a scientific inquiry, nor could it be, for it transcends the sphere in which science commonly operates. That is, a closed system of natural cause and effect which assumes that the forces we see at work in the world today have always operated in just the same way at all times. Since science deals with the causal relationships within the created order, the existence of creation itself must be a philosophical or a theological question. Thus, the fact that God is the creator of all things is beyond the realm of scientific discovery. What this is saying, really, is that there are actually are different kinds of knowledge. And it's one of the challenges in our world today. We only typically think of scientific fact as knowledge. Everything else can be pleasant, but not really real. But that's not always been the understanding. And I would say it is not, the, it is not what is real today. There is moral knowledge there is theological knowledge. There is scientific knowledge. God has been revealing himself in many ways to us. And if we are to reckon with this truth, we must reckon with the fact that science cannot explain some of the deepest questions of life, like why do we exist? Science can look at all that is here and how it interacts with itself, but where did it come from and why is all the matter here? The scriptures reveal to us where it came from and why it exists. So first, we, re we see that, that uh, the belief that God is creator of all things transcends scientific knowledge. It's really not possible for science to disprove the idea that God is creator. It, it's not concerned with that question, even though some scientists may be. But that's not the realm of science itself. Second uh, thing we must reckon with in this question, and that is the belief that God is the creator of all things, and this belief is not opposed to scientific knowledge. 
it transcends it, but it's not opposed to it. You see the difference? It transcends it, but it still works with scientific knowledge. Uh, I'm going to read another quote from Evangelical Convictions here. It says, The Christian doctrine of creation provides the foundation for all the known laws of nature. For God's creation is orderly, and its clear patterns can be investigated and understood. Uh, anybody know the name Johann Kepler? I see some like nods, all right? Your, your, your middle school science is kicking in? All right. Uh, Johann Kepler, uh, German astronomer, uh, astronomer and mathematician, uh, he described this phrase, and I love it. He said, scientific uh, inquiry is really thinking God's thoughts after him. I love that. That, that there is order in this universe, and as we investigate, whether it is astronomy, whether it is physics, we are discovering the processes, the order, the structure, the design that God has embedded in everything. So we are thinking his thoughts after him. Science is a discovery of the order that God has put into all creation. Matter of fact, if there wasn't order, we couldn't really study it. We couldn't count on, on reproducing anything uh, in kind of a scientific um, experiment. That there must be order for that to work. So we are thinking God's thoughts after him as we do science. Now, that's not to say that everything we study is perfectly clear and we all agree upon all the conclusions. Uh, far from it. Uh, actually, as we explore uh, creation, people wind up with some different conclusions about things. And as people even read the scriptures, they wind up with some, some different conclusions about some secondary matters. Uh, I want to read another quote from evangelical convictions on this point. It says that though all evangelical Christians are united in the conviction that God is the creator of all things, they have been divided over how God created, how long it took, and what processes he may have used. However the world has been shaped into its present form, even if through the means that may seem to be random and unpredictable to us with no discernible pattern, it is more than a mindless process. God himself has revealed to us that this world is the result of a divine design with a divine purpose. So, we hold some things essential about God being creator and some things secondary. Not that they're unimportant, but not as important. The fact that there is a creator who has made everything, designed everything, made it good, we hold this essential. How long it took God to create, uh, the exact manner and process he used in his creation, there is differences of opinion even within the church on that question. And we don't divide over that, those issues within the evangelical free church. There's room for the healthy and robust discussion around those questions. But what we affirm unequivocally is that God is creator of all things. He made everything orderly and good, and that includes people. He made human beings in his image. This is one of the things we hold as a essential, is that human beings are more than just animals. That God put his image into human beings. And we are distinct in that way. That has huge implications for us. So I want to spend a few minutes here before moving on to the second point about God being Trinity to consider the implications of God being creator. If we take this seriously, what does it mean for us? 
So I've got a, a statement here. God is the creator of all things, therefore, freedom and flourishing are found living in tune with his design. And what I'm calling God's design is another way to say reality. If God's the one who made everything, he knows how everything works best. So reality is God's design. We can try to live apart from his design, but that's not what's real. That's not reality. So if God, if we're to take this seriously, then what we find is that ultimate freedom and ultimate flourishing are found in tune with his design. I love what Psalm 100 verse 3 uh, says. It says, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The psalmist is celebrating that we are people who have been made. We are people who have been created. Therefore, God, uh, we belong to God. We're, we're his sheep. Um, and therefore, God has intentions for us. Therefore, life is lived best according to the intentions of the shepherd. That God being our creator means his plans are best. And the great deception of our age is that freedom and flourishing can be found in self-definition. Now, we're told, and this is the prevalent message of our day, that to live a free and a flourishing life, we must live according to the desires that we feel within, that we feel are true about us. But if there is a creator, then self-definition is not the path to freedom. It's the path to discord and to harm. And all of us have desires within ourselves that are out of tune with God's design for us. All of us do. Uh, and, and I could list all the different ways this morning, but every single human being has ways in which we think God is wrong in his design. And the question is, are we right or is God right? That's the grand question of life. Are we right? Are our desires right? Or is God right? And what the scriptures are saying is the designer is the one who decides what is right and good. Now, let me try this uh, illustration on. Um, a couple of weeks ago on Easter, we had uh, a bunch of kids up here before the service uh, playing some music on their instruments. They did a great job. It was uh, great to hear from them. Uh, it kind of brought me back uh, to when my kids were growing up, and they played in the band at their school. And when they first started playing in their band, boy, that is a loving response for a parent to say, you're doing a great job, and you're listening to those early... <laughs> but they learn. And I remember going to one of the first uh, performances when they first could really start playing. And I thought, oh my word, this is great. And, and I heard all of the different instruments playing their parts, coming together to form this whole. And the, the whole was beautiful. And now if you've ever gone you know, to a, a higher level uh, kind of performance, it is amazing to hear professional musicians in an orchestra all coming together, playing their individual parts to perform this grand piece of music. And in some ways, what's happening is God is putting together an orchestra in the universe. And he is calling each part, each, everything he has made to play its part. And when we play our part, there is really good music going on in the universe. But the problem is, if we do not want to play the part that we've been given we're out of tune with the larger symphony. And what God is doing is he's calling us to enjoy 
the part for which we were made. And, and that happens in many different ways. Uh, it happens in how he has made us, male and female. It has to do in how he gives us a life to live according to certain giftings and abilities. We all have different ki- talents and giftings. Some I have, some I don't. As we discover how God has made us, we become free to live within the design that he has given. And altogether, it's a beautiful symphony that God has made. But much of the angst, the frustration, the weariness, and the sorrow of our age is the result of humanity living out of tune with this design. That freedom and flourishing can only be found in tune with the Creator's design. So, when we think of God, we should first of all think of God as Creator, the one who defines us in all reality. All right? I promised you the first one was longer than the next two, so hang with me. We'll pick up the speed here, okay? Uh, Secondly, not only is God creator, God is triune. God is triune, eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, Let me walk you through a couple scriptures. Um, Many people ask, uh, the Trinity, it's very confusing, and and it is. Um, you know, is it in the Bible? Uh, where do we get this idea from? Let me walk you through a couple scriptures here. Uh, again, at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, uh, verse 26, we see in the creation account, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. God himself, one God, saying, Let us make man and women in our image, that human beings are made in the image of a God who is three in one. We we see this seated, whispered into the beginnings of the story. Now, the Trinity becomes much more clear as we progress through the story of the Bible, but right from the very beginning, we see it whispered that part of why relationships matter so much to us as people is because we're made in the image of a relational God, and God could not be relational if he was not triune. From eternity past, God has existed in relationship within himself. And we're made in his image. Uh, second verse, John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That Jesus is the word. He is God spoken, God revealed. Uh, God has come and put skin on in the person of Jesus Christ, revealing to us what God is like. And, but it says that he came from the Father, and he is full of grace and truth. And what, God, what Jesus has done is, when he ascended, he has sent the Spirit to us. So the Father sends the Son, and together they send the Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all involved in God's work in this world. And then John 14, verse 25 to 26, says, These things I have spoken to you, while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. This is super good news for us today because as followers of Jesus Christ, it would be impossible for us to follow him because he's not here physically if it were not for the Holy Spirit. That Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit to us so that we can know God and then we can follow Jesus in our day-to-day lives. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God who is three in one. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity, 
for most people, it sounds like the thing theology nerds get all excited about, uh, but is not of much practical value for ordinary Christians. Um, I want to tell you that's actually very far from the truth. Uh, the Trinity is incredibly practical and important for every Christian. See, only if God is triune, only if God is three in one, do we have a basis for saying that love is the meaning in the heart of the universe. Uh, almost everyone I know would say that the most important thing in life is love. I don't care whether you're Christian, uh, just generally religious, irreligious. Everyone I know agrees that love is the most important thing in life. Why is that? Why do we all know that love is so important? You know, if this world were not made by God, if we live in a strictly materialist, naturalist world, then love is little more than an evolutionary drive for survival. If all we are is atoms bouncing around, then really love is a farce. We might think it's important, but it's just an evolutionary drive helping to keep us going. But we all think it's more than that. We all think that love really matters, not just for survival, because it's virtuous. Why this deep sense that love is so important? Well, we're made in the image of a God who is love and love from eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, even in other uh, religions, there's not adequate basis for the, for the statement that love is the center of all things. Uh, Eastern religions conceive of God as a force, not a person, and a force does not love. It requires a person who loves a person for there to be love. Love is personal, and the Trinity is personal, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In unipersonal uh, religions like Islam, love is not primary, power is. You see, if God existed as one person from all eternity past, then he would need to first create in order to love. Power would precede love. But God has existed from eternity past as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He didn't need us in order to love. He had love within himself. And out of love, God creates. Do you see the difference? If power comes first, not love, then love really isn't the center of all things. But that's not the Christian story. Love is at the heart of things, and out of love we are made. God is triune. Here's the implications. Therefore, I am loved, and I can love freely. God is triune, therefore I am loved, and I can love freely. And one of the deepest questions in life is, am I really loved? And maybe the family you grew up in, you didn't feel that. Unfortunately, that is the case for many people. But what the scriptures are telling us is, even if our family of origin did not love us as God would have intended. God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from eternity past, has loved you, has loved us. And when we have this knowledge, there can be a greater security. And when we have that kind of security, we are then able to love freely. Not loving in order to get love, but loving because we are loved. And this is the Christian order of love. We love because Christ first loved us. So when you know that from eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have loved you 
there is a security and a confidence that comes. And it gives us an ability to love even our enemies because we have the love of God that endures forever. Um, it's getting later. Let's drive on. All right, last one. We've t- talked about God being creator, uh, God being triune, and then lastly, God is redeemer. God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. God has graciously purposed from eternity. I'm going to stop there. Let's consider just the first part of that phrase. God has graciously purposed from eternity. Now, when we talk like that, we're starting to delve into the realms of sovereignty. That God, who has existed eternally, has intended, purposed, and planned certain things. God is sovereign. He knows all and is in control. And here's my first uh, question to you. How does that thought strike you? How does the thought that God is sovereign, knows everything, and is purposing a plan to be worked out in this world, how does that idea strike you? Don't, you don't need to talk out loud, but just think about that. Um, for some of us, it's very comforting to think that God is in charge and knows all. For others of us, it's actually a little disturbing. If God is in charge like that, then why the pain in my life? Why the suffering? Why has God allowed those kind of things to happen in our world? Or maybe just look at the, at the larger news headlines. Really? God's sovereign and this is his plan? I think if we're honest, most of us at some point scratch our heads when it comes to this kind of statement about God's sovereignty and say, really? And it's at those times that people often quote uh, verses like Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, where the prophet says, or God says to the prophet, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That verse is often quoted to mean, well, you know, uh, God's a higher pay grade than me. I can't really know, you know, his plans. So I'll just, I'll, I'll accept my place in the universe and uh, trust that he's the one in charge. Now, that's not a bad thought. It is good to know our place in the universe. But that kind of thinking doesn't help us to love God. It might help us to submit to him. It doesn't help us to love him. But we need to understand that this verse isn't trying to tell us to know our place in the universe. If we read this verse in context, it's telling us something else. And let me back up a few verses. Isaiah 55, starting at verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, high as, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways being higher than our ways, God's thoughts being higher than our thoughts, are not primarily about Him being the puppeteer of the universe, pulling the strings, and us not getting what He's up to. The prophet is explaining to us 
that the God of the universe, his eternal purpose is to pardon unrighteous people. See, if I was in God's seat, I would not do that. I would give my enemies what they had coming. Those that didn't like me, I'd repay them back in turn. And what God says is, I'm not like you. My ways aren't like that. My intention is to redeem. My intention is to forgive sin. My intention is to fix what has gone wrong. My ways are higher than your ways. This is such good news. that We live in a world where bad things happen. We live in a world where there is great suffering and hurt. And we often get stuck in the midst of a broken world wondering what God is up to. And that's because we're gauging God's eternal purposes based on our little moment in time. It's almost like walking into a movie and not being there for the beginning of it, not knowing about the end of it, but just seeing in the middle of the movie a key character you know, uh, doing something questionable and you wonder what he's up to. For those of you that are uh, maybe Harry Potter fans, you come in and for a good chunk of the, the series, you're wondering, is Professor Snape good or bad? What's his purpose? What's his intention? What's he doing? It's not until you see the whole of the story do you see what his intentions really are. And for all of us, we get stuck living in this little moment that we call our lives, engaging God's purposes based on how we are experiencing him in this moment. And the scriptures give us the whole of the story. That God created this world and he created us and said, it is good. And God created us to live in relationships of love and to be blessed. And this world has fallen. We have fallen. We have turned from God and his good intentions. We call that sin. And God still, though, did not turn from us. But through the whole Old Testament, God is working with and through his people, planning to bring a rescuer into our world. And he brings himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, comes into this world. And it says that he came as a servant, not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. God's purpose is to redeem, to ransom us from our brokenness, to bring back, to fix, to rescue. And the story continues, though. We, we still live, even with a God now who has ransomed us, Life still is broken, but that's not how this story ends. I mean, the final statement in that article is that God will restore all things. That one day Christ will return. And not only will our sin have been dealt with, that was dealt with on the cross, but the very presence of sin and therefore suffering will be removed. That God's purpose from all eternity past has been to redeem to redeem this world, and to redeem you. And what that means, what that means, is that if God is Redeemer, if God is Redeemer, therefore the brokenness of life need not control me. If God is Redeemer, the brokenness of life need not control me. We will all still deal with the brokenness of life. We will also be affected by the brokenness of life, physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally. There's no way to get through life unharmed. But it need not control us. In Christ, we can have a great hope and a confidence that he will restore all things to his original created purposes and somehow, in some way, even better. 
The brokenness of life need not control us. Right now, how are you processing the brokenness of life? That might be in your own story. That might simply be in the headlines you are reading. How, how are you responding to the brokenness of life that we all deal with? Friends, God's good desire for you is to meet you in that place. And most likely, that piece of brokenness is not going to be taken away. But the scripture does promise that God is with us in it. He can give us a peace that passes understanding to guide us through it. And one day, he will restore all things. Is that your hope? Is that your hope? If we don't know and trust that God is Redeemer, we will pull away from him in our sin and in our pain and in our confusion. But if we know and trust that God is Redeemer, we will run to him with everything. Here it is, God. I need help again. Help. I love what Romans 8, 28 says. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. In my little slice of life, I don't understand fully how that can be true. I look at some of the things going on and say, how can the all things of my experience work together for good? But then I look at the scriptures and I see how God has been doing this for generation after generation. Working with people's brokenness, bringing them to himself, leading them towards something that is far greater and far better. And one day, one day, we will see perfectly the completion of this story. That's the grand symphony that we are all a part of. Friends, if we're going to have a faith that is solid and a church that is vibrant, we must know that God is creator of all things. Therefore, freedom and flourishing are found living in tune with his design. We must know that God is triune. Therefore, we are loved and free to love. And we must know that God is redeemer. Therefore, the brokenness of our lives need not control us. Will you stand with me? Let's close in prayer. Father, uh, Son, Holy Spirit, how thankful we are uh, that your word reveals to us who you are. Lord, that you are a God who has made all things. So God, would you give us eyes this week uh, to see this world that you've made? God, I pray that we would be uh, in awe and wonder at a God that is so powerful uh, and so creative and so good as to make all that we see around us. And God, I pray that you'd help us to live wisely I pray, Lord, that uh, since you are the one who is our creator, Lord, we would trust you uh, to live according to what you say is right and good. God, we thank you that you are a God who's triune, that love really is the heart of the universe. So God, I pray that you make us confident in your love. Help us to be able to love even as we have been loved. And God, we thank you that you are a God who redeems. There is nothing that is beyond your reach. We are so, we are so thankful, Lord, that you came and you died, that our sin would be dealt with, and you rose triumphing over death itself. So God, we know uh, that all things are in your power to redeem and restore. Give us confidence this week to walk with you in that victory. We thank you, Lord, and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's close worshiping our holy God.
else commands all the host of heaven? Who else can make every king bow down? Who else can whisper in darkness, tremble? Only your holy God. What other beauty? What other beauty demands such praises? What other splendor outshines the sun? 